0: Greetings race community, Brent coming in live with today's guest, Rodney Grabowski, Vice President for University Advancement at the University at Buffalo. Welcome, Rod.
1: Thank you so much, Brent. It's my uh, pleasure to be here.
0: Is there a um, history of when we decide a university is an of versus an at? You must get this this question from time to time because it's hard, you know, and, and as a vendor, partner, I feel like we have to learn all the nuances. Because if you don't, if I call it University of Buffalo, which I'm sure people do all the time, that's, that's right. not very thoughtful, you know, prep work and so forth. So tell me about the at.
1: Well, and it really started, the, the University at Buffalo started as a private university uh, back in the 1800s. Uh, so we were University of Buffalo. And then when the state Uh, In the early 19th, State of New York wanted to establish a state university system. They actually came and purchased the University of Buffalo, and uh, it is now the State University of New York at Buffalo, meaning it's a university at Buffalo. Uh, Bottom line is the state owns every single building on our campus, but uh, we operate as an independent university in the sense of academics. But we're obviously have a we're, we're part of the State University of New York system so that's where the at came from there's also a university at Albany so we're not uh unique in that we're not the only at uh, university in the state system
0: but it's not the state university at New York you know okay you know hey we got <laughs> problems that we can address um, yeah. together now, I was just catching up with you for a couple of minutes before we started recording. You and I have known each other for a long time. I feel like I've kind of grown up um, under your uh, tutelage and guidance um, on this entrepreneurial journey. But in spite of you know, lots of time that we spent in person and, and remotely, uh, you just cover ground in this context that you otherwise wouldn't. And, and we asked you, now, usually I ask people, uh, you know, take me back to junior year of high school, Um, Tell me about that person. And then, you know, tell me about your college uh, path, uh, which in your case was to study nothing less than uh, optical engineering at the University of Rochester. So I do want to ask you that question, but I first have to ask about middle school, elementary school, and I want to know about Boy Scout, (laughs) Ralph Grabowski. How did you get involved with the Scouts? And tell me about um, the impact that had in your upbringing.
1: Well, thanks, Brent. Uh, you know, I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York, one stoplight, like Phoenix, New York. It's just north of Syracuse. And there was, um, I'm the youngest of five children. I'm a first generation high school graduate. So when I was being raised in upstate New York in Phoenix, there wasn't a lot of activities you could get involved in uh, besides um, baseball, Pop Warner football or, uh, and then when you got into high school, it was a high school sports. Uh, I love sports, but I'm not much of an athlete and don't perform well on the, uh, the, the field. So that's why I found uh, the Boy Scouts. Uh, my oldest brother's an Eagle Scout. Uh, I'm an Eagle Scout and was involved in the program since I was eight years old. My parents were involved as well and, and, and in a small town. You get very engaged in the scouting program was pivotal to helping the community grow and be successful. And that uh, my brother just shared, uh, it was a 4th of July, I think it was a nineteen uh, early 1980s and we did a float for the 4th of July parade and that we did raising the flag at Iwo Jima. So we worked so hard on this float and we've all seen the photos. And so we also, took our lawnmower, our John Deere tractor, encased it in cardboard and made it look like a tank. And so it's going down the, the street and the, uh, you know, the announcer, when you you come up and you know they are supposed to announce, you know, the organization, announce the float and everything. And there was a pause. There was nothing. And my brother, Ray, who was instrumental in making it happen, he's like, what happened? They didn't even announce this. Well, it's because when they saw it, they were so awestruck. They just didn't expect it. And it moved so many people's emotions that, um, you know there were people that told us later, they were on the side of the road, stood up and were crying because of a family that had died in the war and or, or their own memories. And so that's what's growing up in a small community does. And, and scouting taught me a lot about leadership, a lot, a lot about my values. About giving back to others, and, and it happened through middle school, high school, and even you know, professionally and now volunteer wise.
0: I love that story. And, um, can I just ask? I mean, you said at the beginning that you were a first generation high school grad, that's right. We've had a lot of guests, we've had over 100 uh folks on the podcast, and we've had, um, for sure, uh, a handful of first generation college grads who've shared that part of their journey. It's a big part of my journey. I think you're the first person we've had who said first gen high school grad. And um, if you don't mind me asking, just tell me a little bit more about, you know, that reality, but, um, but the, the, the um, sense of, I don't know, values or community that was clearly instilled in your folks, um, you know, in spite of not having the high school education, it, it clearly didn't stop them from, um, you know, pushing you and your brothers in a super positive direction and your, and yeah, your siblings.
1: That's right. And that uh, my father uh, came over from Poland in uh, 1928 when he was eight years old. And um, when he got married, uh, he had never graduated from high school. My mother hadn't graduated from high school. So neither one of them. And then they started having children. This was the early 1960s. And Uh, they really wanted to make sure they valued education, they wanted their children to get the high school diploma. My mother went and got her GED diploma the same year that I graduated from college. She was that committed to it. She wanted to achieve that. So they really encouraged us. My three older brothers all went enlisted in the Air Force. They really weren't uh, necessarily focused on college at the time. My sister is the first uh, she's next, she's number four, and she was the first to actually graduate from college in anywhere in our family lineage, and I was second. So the value of education, that's what drives me today, and even the, um, the work that I do here at the University of Buffalo or any university I work at, because I know education is a game changer, and access to that education can, you know, that, uh, an academic scholarship is what allowed me to go to school and, and complete my degree. And I just feel this responsibility to pay it forward.
0: I love that. So basically, what the Gronkowskis are to upstate New York football <laughs> is what the Grabowskis were to the Air Force and the Boy Scouts, basically. That's it, right? Yeah, you, know, you make it nice and simple. I like it. <laughs> so tell me about um, in that context. So you've got older siblings, and it sounds, you know, who, who have gone down the military path, your sister had gone to college, so you'd at least had a window into the process um, as yeah. a first-gen um, student. You ended up sort of in the general vicinity, if not, you know, backyard, um, yeah. um, starting out at the University um, of Rochester, but how did you, how did you you sort of narrow down that that process, or maybe it was the scholarship that narrowed it down for you?
1: Well, you know, my small town high school really focused on math and science. That was primarily the academic programs. And so that's really about all I knew. And so when I picked the University of Rochester, being honest, it was a scholarship that I received. It was a prestigious private school and it was a little bit away from home. It allowed me to spread my wings. Uh, But it was a year into it that I recognized that I did not want to be an optical engineer and that uh, I ended up transferring to Syracuse University, uh, wanting to get into the business program, ended up not having quite the right GPA to get in, and uh, ended up getting a degree in international relations. And I greatly value that because it is it very much has unearthed my human side, my, the, the liberal sciences, you know whether it's I'm taking Greek literature or uh, uh, you know art history as well as the uh, History of um, our world, and I focused a lot on European history and the uh, women's uh, movement history and the like. So it really has allowed me to better understand people and relate. And I have then capitalized that into working professionally for, uh, um, you know, a university. Ended up getting my MBA because I wanted to, not because I had to, and that has been very meaningful to me. So. Well, as a fellow uh,
0: international relations grad, um, I do feel like, I mean, you're talking a lot about empathy. And I think empathy is uh, super important in many different um, walks of life, but certainly uh, a a key part of fundraising success. I'm really trying to understand what makes somebody tick, where they're coming from, uh, where they want to go. And um, uh, at what point did you understand, because I doubt there was a lot of history of philanthropy uh, curriculum in the IR uh, program at Sirius, but at what point did you start to realize um, that there was this world of fundraising? I mean, even as a scholarship recipient ourselves, I feel like sometimes it's like the money just magically appeared or you know, was sort of um, uh, removed from the total bill, but it wasn't necessarily clear uh, at all what the path was to that uh, credit uh, being applied to one's uh, you know, tuition. So for you, when did you start getting exposure to the the sector that we now work in?
1: Well, uh, college, uh, my first real professional job, uh, I would say, is working uh, for the Boy Scouts as a uh, a professional uh, fundraising, building programs, helping volunteers be successful and the like. And uh, after almost six years of that, I really wanted to parlay that into something that I um, greatly had a very much had a passion for, and that was education. And I found the opportunity to work at Alfred University in rural upstate New York, where I was the associate director of uh, reunion giving and parents programs. And so that's where I got to understand the pride of alums, the impact of giving and the difference that it can make. And that's when I really found my passion for being engaged in the advancement industry in higher ed uh, seeing firsthand, you know, even our phoning students, a lot of them were scholarship uh, recipients and, and seeing the impact that philanthropy was making in their lives. And, uh, you know, mind you, this was in the 1990s and, uh, our technology was very different. We were still using paper phone cards, you know, it, uh, uh,
0: so, so we, we occasionally hear, um, and you're one of the folks who's, who's lived through that, like, yeah. early career, um, paper cards to where we are now. And we'll talk about that, but what was the process? Like you're a fundraiser, you get hired at Alfred University. Welcome yeah. to the team. Here's our goal. What do you actually do in
1: 1995? Uh, 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 I yeah, know, I remember, and then, you know, for instance, we had, we very much had reunion volunteers and, uh, Chairs for each of the reunion classes every five year increment. But I remember one time needing to do a trip to Pittsburgh. We had a lot of alumni there. Well, I had to make you literally had to do a data request to get out of the VAX computer uh, a printout of who you could call. And uh, you know, you trudge across campus, you get this uh, 95 page printout, and I made over 300 calls to get six appointments. I mean, that was. You literally, it was dialing for appointments. There was no, you didn't email for an appointment. That just didn't exist. And that uh, it was, I felt like you already had a relationship before you even showed up. And and there were very meaningful contacts. Not to say that we don't now, people just communicate differently. It just, but it was hard work. 300 phone calls to get six appointments because the type of data that we had back then to allow us to be able to narrow that list was much more limited. That was the early days of electronic screenings and you may got a score and you really didn't quite understand it. And uh, um, it's hard, I mean, it's, it's hard to even talking
0: about empathy. It really is hard to empathize where, you know, as well as I know you, even for this conversation, I, I've got your LinkedIn profile for a reference, hugely helpful, right? And all of this context, I can be Googling with Wikipedia in the background to see how far the Grabowski's and the Gronkowski's grew up you know, from each other. Like there's yeah. so much at our disposal to be staring at a printout with no context, no resume, just like a name, a degree, or whatever you know, key stats you had. And then to call somebody unannounced hope they pick up and have a script ready to go that's right to differentiate from all of the other telemarketers that i'm sure we're calling these folks um i mean on one hand it uh it does sound just just like um so so different so time intensive um but the other hand there is a beautiful simplicity of not having a million other things to reference or cross reference or Google or check your phone in the background and just sort of be in the yeah. zone and hammer out 300 interactions, um, in advance of a, of a trip. So I do wonder if maybe we're, we're missing some of that.
1: Um, Brent, what, what do you I would mean? say to that is that it, what it also taught me though, is to be careful how much you know on someone before you go in on the first visit, you want to know enough so that it seems like this is going to be time well spent. But I don't want to have such a a heavy, I don't need uh, 98 pages of research on someone to know, I need to go talk to them, listen to them, hear their story. And, And it gives you so much more of that color commentary that then allows you to come back and say, oh, okay, uh, this is their LinkedIn profile. Now, this is really the background between the transition from company A to company B and why they did it. Uh, had that happen recently out in California in that uh, just enough information, no, this was the right person to go to. And and then filled in so much more of that narrative, but it, it really allows you to focus and pay attention and listen. Not to say that... Um, there's no one right way, but you just need to be careful that you you may already know it, but you have to consciously say, I'm going to ask the question anyway, because I want to hear it in their words. And, and that allows, I think, uh, you to connect better with your, your people that are sitting across the table from you, because who doesn't like talking about themselves, right? You know, ask a question, let people speak. What's their background? And that... Uh, You'll
0: get like you did me in the beginning. You know, you want to know about me. I mean, I mean, like, the, you know, I've known you for a long time, but like the Iwo Jima, you know, float, like parade experience being so seared in your mind, right, in your family's mind, that's never come up before, right? Because I've never asked because we've never, you know, really gotten to the like, who are you holistically versus, you know, who are you today as as an advancement leader, Um, which is part of why we started the podcast, because it was an excuse to just take that time and and not talk about um, the last, you know, 5 years of your resume and and, and spend more time, you know, on, on the first 5 years which always then link to the present.
1: Well, and you know, and everything that you do with EverTrue, the better data that you have and you provide to our uh, advancement folks is fantastic because the graduating classes are getting bigger and bigger. There's a lot more to sift through, and and we need help in order to narrow that and who we should really be spending trying to spend time with, so that you can have these meaningful conversations. But it's an it's a gateway. It's a it's information. It, it you know we can't forget the art of that conversation. You're just, well, you're just doing it up for us.
0: Absolutely, and and we want to you know, we talk about the giving funnel a lot, right? And the way that engagement happens in 2022 is a lot different than 1995. And the way that it's measurable, right? That wasn't included in the printouts that you got uh, from the right. VAX computer, whatever that is. I mean, VAX meant a different thing Vax, for sure. Um, so it's, it's, you know, not only did the information not exist, it wasn't tracked, and it certainly wasn't contextualized. But then when you take that, And you add in the qualification components, right? There are a lot of people out there who are super engaged, passionate supporters that are not appropriate uses of time from a discovery perspective as we all fight with, you know, constrained resources in the sector. And so being really judicious about when should we be trying to use the information to personalize messaging in a more one-to-many or broad-based marketing perspective, when does it really inform assignment, and that this person needs to be engaged um, in a one-to-one capacity, either you know today via Zoom or out in California, like you were recently. And, and I think that that's where, you know while the technology does improve, um, and we're proud of the progress we're making, um, for sure, from where I sit, the big gap in the sector right now is a willingness to cold call three hundred people to get six meetings, and I actually think we're at a point now where you can almost we can almost eliminate cold calling because between historical giving information engagement, what we understand about people professionally, mm-hmm. you really should not be cold calling today um, because you know there there's just from you know, the unassigned prospect pool there is no shortage of people who have been philanthropic who care, we know what they care about, are professionally advancing. Contrasting that with the sheet that you got and the cold calls you made, this is hot calling that we should be doing today. Um, But it doesn't really happen in the way that you were describing. Why?
1: Um, I think part of it, you know, we just had a conversation this morning with my uh, executive team in regards to this. I think that Part of the challenge is that we need to continue to find ways to simplify all of this and then operationalize. And I'm gonna give you a very specific example. Uh, you know, in the past three years, the alumni engagement metric scoring is something that now is becoming the industry standard for alumni engagement to understand what, how are your alums engaging with you, whether it be philanthropically, volunteer, uh, whether it be through engagement or it is through, um, Uh, communications, and we just spent some time uh, last week as part of a case cohort looking at, for instance, okay, these are your alums that are engaging with you on communications, but only 8% of them are given. Why is that? Now you have, you already know they're engaging with you on communications. Now can maybe we we can um, work on that cohort. We have another, we can say, okay, these are your alums that are volunteering they're giving of their time. Only 30% of them are giving. When you're volunteering, oftentimes that's where your donations go. And you, When you benchmark against other schools getting 50, 60, 70% of their volunteers donating, that's an, a perfect example. Um, what you're talking about is these aren't cold calls. These are people that are already warmed up to the university and we need to be paying attention to these data points and, and integrating them into our practice. And and I think the more that we understand any of the data points that you provide, that we can even generate ourselves and build them into our pipeline development program, you're really eliminating that cold call like you're talking about. So you call them or you email them, there's a better, better chance than not that you're gonna get a response. I mean, I love this intersection of case metrics relative
0: to philanthropy, right? Cause like, why are yeah. we doing all the engagement? Um, you know, right. there's mission. But ultimately, it is about driving philanthropy and impact. Um, Should we just be creating a program or a campaign to call the volunteers who volunteer but don't give and ask them why? Or to survey the people that are digitally engaged but don't give and just say, instead of it being will you give, do we just need to say, Rod, you've been a great supporter. You volunteered. We know you're engaged with us from a digital perspective. Mm -hmm you stopped giving about 10 years ago and we've just been doing some outreach because we wanna better understand why. I mean, right. do we know? I mean, does Case know? Do we know the answer to why are people not giving? Is it, I don't think I was asked? Cause we know they were asked, but yeah, like right. I, I wasn't asked or I forgot, or I, you know, I have right, made other decisions. But I mean, ultimately, isn't that what, it's like, how do you scale the qualification conversation, you know, rooted in a much warmer starting point, which is I know you care. Like right. I don't have to call you wondering, do you care? I know you care because you've been engaged. Right. You have, have have been a volunteer, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, I mean, or or should that, I mean, who owns that, I guess? Who owns like alumni engagement? We engage them, right? Development, right. one-to-one relationship building, we've got the annual fund. Whose job is it to figure out why aren't these people who the data suggests should be giving,
1: aren't. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that fortunately for us here at the University of Buffalo, we're an integrated advancement shop. So my associate vice president of alumni engagement also oversees annual giving. Uh, my new person starts uh, on June 1st. And so when we you ask the question, whose responsibility is that? Well, it is ultimately... What we want is all these ideas that we're just even talking about, we need to start implementing. And I've been focused on being a digital first organization uh, since the beginning of this pandemic. And what does that mean for us? And it means, you know, better training for our staff. It's, it's, it's even understanding what type of skill sets we need in hiring. It's better governance and it's better technology and the use of it and to create these operational plans because advancement has a history of being um, so traditional. This is the way we've always done it, and we're afraid to try something new because we're afraid that it's going to change the total dollars that we raised last year versus this year. Well, I'm encouraging my team, take a risk, take a chance, try something, and learn from them if it doesn't do well, but also learn if it does, and you and I, Brent, have talked about the fact that I I fixed my major gift, principal gift side of my house as I deliver on a, um, a billion dollar campaign. What I really need to now focus on is the more the leadership annual giving, the outreach, the more personalized outreach and mass versus. Yeah, I do have student calling, but that's just that's a very that's very much a transactional gift. We need to find that group of professionals that can be more the relational, but do it more in mass. And that's why I've enjoyed the conversations with you about what does a digital engagement officer look like? You just need to be doing more of it. And, but more of it with uh, follow-up, more of it with that relationship in mind so that we can move people along the, uh, the continuum.
0: Yeah, look, you've said the word relationship over and over, and we say it all the time in this sector. Um, we say it's a relationship business, and it is. That's how you raise a billion dollars. Um, but what we've discussed and what folks in this podcast are probably getting tired of hearing about is the fact that roughly 1% of the market actually has a relationship, 1% of donors. We don't call them student relationship officers. We call them student callers because, frankly, yeah. we do not want them to have a relationship with the donor. It's like we are engineering the program to prevent authentic relationships from being developed. And yes, sometimes it will happen because there's such a connection that it just, you know, it it just really sinks. But imagine if that was how we did major gift work. If it was like you did at Alfred in 1995, the end, I'm going to call the list and I'm going to try to close them. I'm going to get six people, you know, who are willing to take a meeting, maybe I can just close them in one phone call. We would never do that, yet that's how we expect the middle and base of our giving pyramid to give. And obviously there's been an evolution, but it really is about the relationship, scaling the relationship, having different gradients of relationship because obviously a trustee relationship is going to be different than the recent grad uh, relationship, but the recent grad relationship can be radically better than the recent grad relationship in 1995, and that is what we're pushing for. You know, starting with great segmentation, and yeah. then deciding how do we scale more relationship building further down the giving pyramid without taking our eye off the prize um, that ultimately is going to drive the billion dollars.
1: We're on the same page on this. It really, you know, it, uh, we all have the the same long term goals and the hardest part for me as a vice president is allocation of resources. I wish I had more resources because you're, you're you know, it's, you're constantly juggling the balls and uh, you do a billion dollar campaign. I need to make sure that I have strong donor relations. I need to make sure I have strong communications. You know, you need to have those principal gifts. And then, oh, by the way, you need alumni engagement and annual giving. And, and uh, uh, I think that we've found a good balance, but we constantly have to be looking to improve and uh, um, because we know we can still do better.
0: I actually, I think we have, um, I think your balance is improving, Rod, but I think as a sector, we are set up so poorly in this regard and it's nobody's fault, but there just aren't other sectors where leaders in your position, you know, you and your peers, what are you measured on? For the most part it's dollars, right? Like, let's just say, you know, as a peer group, um, what's the one number you can't miss? Like, the dollars are what people, right, the president can't miss the dollars, you know, like, here's the announcement, we're concluding our campaign, great news, tripled our expectations, you know, beat our alumni engagement expectations uh, by a factor of three. We uh, had, events with incredibly high NPS all over the country, all over the world. Yep. Um, unfortunately, we missed our dollar goal by 50%. That's um, however, like you're yeah. right, that's a failure. And, and I don't think there are too many other industries where the leaders are measured basically on short-term revenue, yeah. but expected to speak to recent graduate. The recent grad equivalent in the enterprise sales world, yeah, like enterprise sales leaders do not have to worry about the SMB or the mid market. They're hired to lead enterprise sales, enterprise sales leaders in advancement, right? People in your position yeah. have to hit the number through the enterprise equivalent, right? While speaking to and programming around gifts that won't be uh, realized for 50 years. That is So unique to this sector because there just aren't many other sectors where you literally grow your customers like from student to recent to first time to supporter to the first you know medium sized gift I ever make to my estate plan. No other sector works in that way, uh, and it really really makes it, um, I think so difficult to achieve the balance because ultimately. Your job is to raise money today.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that, uh, uh, you know, if you're counting your your cash commitments every single year versus your pledges, unfortunately, at the University of Buffalo, we're a fundraising enhancing organization, not a budget balancing fundraising organization. Because of that, I really don't um, focus on my cash coming in every year. I focus on getting the pledge commitments, and and then expect that the pledge payment cycle will uh, work properly. Uh, I think the one area is annual giving. You typically do also focus on on the cash side of it, but that really has allowed us to um, stay focused more on the relationship versus can you write the check today, and that uh, and it allowed us has allowed us to slow it down a little bit to develop those deeper conversations but you're right and we are a what what have you done for me today type of organ you know industry and, and it's industry. right industry right
0: can I ask a little bit um, quickly sort of spinning through the the path that you've taken um, to leadership you know your your kind of upstate New York roots like deep ties Um, study in the general region, Alfred University, don't really see the pivot to Jacksonville, Florida um, coming. Um, Like, had you really traveled much at this point, like, Florida versus upstate New York, very different culturally? Uh, Just what was that like? Um, Especially just given how, yeah, just just how connected you were to, to one region until that moment?
1: Yeah, it it was ironic. I mean, I always, obviously, with an international relations degree, I always had this desire to travel, but, you know, I grew up in uh, the lower uh, economic scale, so didn't really have the ability to do that. Uh, Made a couple of trips from Phoenix, New York to like Washington, D.C. or or Boston, but that was about it. Uh, And so... When I finally started working professionally and and, uh, got married, started having children, I remember my in-laws retired, and it was February, and they're swimming in St. Augustine, Florida, and they call us, and it's the middle of a blizzard. My wife looked at me and said, there's something wrong here. (laughs) So that's when uh, I started looking at the opportunities and Jacksonville University came around, and I was going from a small private to a small private, which worked at the time. But then honestly, I made a decision that I wanted. I could have, when I left Jacksonville University, I could have become a vice president at a, uh, a small private college. I chose to make a lateral move at that point and to get into public higher education, just because that is really what resonates for me. It's about access, it's about affordability, and uh, making that jump to the University of North Florida really uh, allowed me to um, deepen my knowledge in particular areas and really get that good strong campaign experience as well as plan giving because you know when you're in a smaller organization you end up being a generalist at most things but you're only about an inch deep on any topic so you're more wide in your knowledge but (laughs) Uh, As soon as I made the jump to a larger organization, it allowed me to go deeper on specific topics. And, And I found that to be very valuable and allowed me to continue to mature and grow my experience so that I was better positioned to be the campaign director, to be the senior associate VP, to eventually when I was at the University of South Florida, that was my first time that I was the interim CEO of the USF Foundation. When there was a leadership change, and great experience, and it really positioned me well, but each one of these stops. it's learning and constantly learning what don't I know that I need to learn and, and learning from your mistakes as well, because I've made plenty of them.
0: I think um, we probably take for granted as a vendor partner, um, and I, I, you know maybe donors do as well, how much? the advancement professionals we work with really know about advancement in general um, or even within specific domains. And we might, you know, we forget that um, there are folks who are new to the sector where, you know, I might know more about the sector than they do, but I think because of the job title or the business card um, the assumption is, well, they must be, you know, they must be uh, the expert. When you think about all of the organizations you've worked with and the uh, leaders and and staff you've collaborated with, is there an area of the field that you feel like most people only go an inch deep on, but they probably would really benefit no matter where you work in advancement in going a little bit deeper? Sometimes plan giving gets brought up as as one of those areas, for example. But, But does anything come to mind as just saying, hey, everybody in this field should know a little bit more about X or Y?
1: Well, um, I, I think first and foremost, people need to know about themselves. They really need to understand what their interests are. And uh, I'm a firm believer, everyone on my team, all 120 plus do finder. What are your five strongest strengths? And really having that conversation, what do you enjoy doing? And what do you kind of put off to the side? And and I say that so that, yeah, of course, everyone should know enough about planned giving so that they can at least have it in their toolbox if they're a fundraiser. Even my alumni engagement team needs to recognize the signs of what someone may be thinking about as potentially a planned gift. Um, But I will tell you, I think that the other area that people really need to understand better is management and leadership. You need to, If the higher up you go in in all of this, everyone thinks I want to be the vice president, you know, I want all the power, all the control. Well, it also comes with a lot of responsibility. And the amount of time that you spend motivating and leading and guiding and counseling is, is a big part of the job. And I have seen people that do it very that have gotten into it and do it very well and i've also seen incredible major gift officers principal gift officers that want to get into leadership because they feel that's where they can make the most money and have the biggest impact but that's not their passion they love just going out and meeting with people and having the conversations about giving but as a vice president i don't have nearly the amount of time that i would like to be able to do that because there's so many other uh, areas of responsibility and and i think that even a basic understanding about not only what is management and what is leadership, but then what is your role in supporting? If you're on a management team or you're on a lead, or you have leadership responsibility, how do you support the organization and the direction versus being actually the squeaky wheel? Because-
0: Can I ask because-
1: this is one of the sectors where,
0: and, and you have written about compensation, you've written in case currents, folks should Google yes. um, Rod to, to see more about his perspective on some of these topics. But isn't one of the big issues here that if you want to advance professionally, you are essentially funneled into a management and leadership. And when I say advance professionally, let's let's also yes. acknowledge, you know, if I want to earn more money. I need to right. lead and manage in the advancement sector. Yeah. Where is the career path for the person who says, I do not like to lead, I do not like to manage, I would love to raise $10 million a year with none of the other people's stuff that goes with that. Yeah. And I want sort of you know, continued growth in career, you know, in, in earnings potential and so forth. Maybe that exists more often than I realize, but it just feels to me like one of the um, mm-hmm. real disconnects in the sector. And so then what ends up happening instead is we try to find somebody who does want to lead and manage and they're vice president. And they also have 40 people in their portfolio and they're supposed to raise $10 million a year. So like, it's that sort of separation of leadership management and fundraising that yeah. seems
1: relatively rare. Yeah, and I think that um, uh, what I try to do is you look at larger organizations, larger universities. Will have principal gifts teams. They'll have assistant and associate vice presidents of principal gifts. And you start looking at you know I pay attention to the salary surveys that show what is the average compensation for a small, medium, large school. Uh, we participate in it every single year because we want to make sure our compensation is is on a national pay scale. And you will find that some of those assistant associate vice presidents of principal gifts, now they may have no one that they're supervising, or they may have one or two like people or an executive assistant, but it's not a team of 20, 40, 120. And they're pulling down some decent salaries. And then someone like myself who believes in the incentive or supplemental compensation model, where Everyone in the organization, not just the fundraisers, should have a way to qualify for some type of uh, supplemental annual bonus uh, based upon their performance. But that performance needs to be above and beyond. It's not about the standard expectation. I met my goals. No, supplemental or incentive comp should be above that. You know, you win a certain percentage or you hit a certain dollar goal. It's not percentage based upon how much you raised because that's unethical. But uh, as long as you we have a program here at the University of Buffalo, we just implemented it. And, and I will tell you, we had to go through a lot of hoops because we had to negotiate with the unions. We had to negotiate with the non-union uh, representatives. Uh, I have foundation employees. I have uh, um, research foundation and I have state employees. And, and some are unionized, some are not. And, and getting all agreement how we're going to do it has taken us a couple of years But we've seen a noticeable difference in regards to performance by giving officers and non-giving officers looking to try to achieve uh, and and, um, make some a little bit of additional money.
0: And and so it's not premature to sort of say that there there has been a, a before and after that you've been able to see in the data?
1: Oh, we saw it. The first quarter because the way that we did it for the uh, fundraising staff was you know you can achieve up to a 10 uh um, bonus uh, at the end of the year and that uh, but it also was looking at we took your annual goal and also divided up by quarter and so you know you could qualify for up to one percent for every quarter that you achieved your quarter goals uh, that would be part of that ten percent so there's different ways and different mechanisms and You want to see a change in habit about uh, contact reports getting in timely proposals and solicitations happening because um, very focused driven individuals that like to achieve well i I love that
0: um you know it's also like i'm a a parent right and so there's always the carrot (laughs) versus stick right and so it's like always trying to reframe what's the positive incentive versus if you don't do this right and i think that that's really what you're describing um, there's a, a really well-documented um, analysis of different philosophies around what motivates people. Maybe some of you have heard about extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivation. And generally, when you read articles about extrinsic, which generally means things like status, title, compensation versus intrinsic, which is more purpose, mission, etc, most of those articles tend to talk about how we over index on extrinsic and it's not about bonuses and compensation and titles. It's really about purpose and passion and connection to the work and so forth. And I need to write this article because I feel strongly that this sector is an exception where we have over indexed on intrinsic motivation and we ask people to work for the mission and the student and the impact and all of these intrinsic things, sometimes at the expense of being able to get rewarded for going above and beyond. right? And where where that is the only tool in the tool belt in a lot of commercial organizations, it is barely a a tool in the tool belt of this one. And, And Rod has been one of the leaders who has championed this. And it's great to see you not only championing it philosophically, but having data that supports if you can take this, like we can win on purpose in this sector. It is your right. journey as a first-generation high school student. It is my journey as a first-gen college student. We have no shortage of intrinsic motivation, right? but you marry that with more compelling extrin- extrinsic motivation with bonus, with incentive, right? what an opportunity. Well, and we're seeing it. And, you
1: know, unfortunately, even with our Supplemental Compensation Program, for those that don't want to uh, do the quarterly, there's still other ways they can qualify. Uh, we built it to have some flexibility. But even every single person in my organization, my research team can even qualify. And what does that look like? And that's what we've really been focusing on, because we want to be a best-in-class advancement organization. We want every piece of the organization to be functioning at its best. And um, we challenge people to understand what that is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the challenge, right? I mean, with if you're going to put in an incentive program, um, you need measurables. And I feel like that's, that's right. an area where, you know, yes, we have case metrics. Yes, we have campaign goals. Yes, individual development officers, you can have pretty clear metrics, but you go Further into the organization there's so much support and in infrastructure systems research communications you know areas where the measurables maybe um, have been more subjective in the past you know you're doing a good job you know you've got a good attitude um, and and I feel like even right now at our organization we, we came together with thank you by way of a merger seven months ago um, and we are now in the process of really saying okay as a combined organization you know what are the key measurables for the for a company, but also what does that mean down to every single individual? Um, and and in some cases, it's revealing. Well, we, you know, what do we want folks influencing? Do we want them focused on revenue growth? Do we want them focused on better retention rates? You know, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction. Um, how do you get down to those you know baseline measurables? Um, even if there's not a core you know metric like dollars raised that you can attach to every single person, you can at least get every person a lot closer to the core broader business objectives you're trying to to move. And in some cases, it's revealed we don't have instrumentation in place to even get at a specific measurable. Um, So, you know, for example, research, I don't know how research is measured in the sector, um, but I could see there being some sort of, you know, research satisfaction metric where maybe after you know, maybe development officers do a survey once a quarter um, to, you know, score yes. the, the research colleagues. And maybe there's a reciprocal version where, you know, how is the research being used? I'm, I'm spitballing here. But, you know, getting right. to those kind of core drivers is is a real challenge. But such an opportunity because it allows alignment.
1: Well, and, you know, my research team just uh, we just were discussing this this morning. It's uh, how... What do they focus on? Because, you know, you have a database of 400,000 people and there are only so many hours in a day and there's only so many research. What should they focus on? And we encourage them. What do you think? And uh, gave them some guidance and they proposed something back to us, which was great, because now we know that 35 percent of their time, for instance, they're going to focus on our segment A prospects. Well, right now we have about an 83% accuracy rate with those, uh, with that segment A. They want to approve it to 90% and above this next year. I love it. it. I love it. (laughs) That that is the best.
0: Yeah. That is so much better than my spitballing. And I apologize to (laughs) everyone right now. But what a clear example of having the core measurable, 83% accuracy, however that may define, we're going to take it to 90%. Right, I love it, and and I, yeah. I'm sure there are folks listening right now thinking, I have no idea how my research team you know is measured, and so right. um, you shouldn't all email Rod and ask him for uh, <laughs> you know, follow up <laughs> materials. But yeah, we'll cover it. We'll cover it um, as that is implemented. I uh, we are uh, time is flying here, uh, Rod. I, I just have to ask in in the time that we have remaining, I want to be respectful of your yeah. schedule. Boldly Buffalo, billion-dollar uh, campaign. Give me the rundown on, on where you've been, where you are, um, and what um, folks should be thinking about in the context of the university at Buffalo.
1: Yeah, and I will say that uh, the Boldly Buffalo campaign has really transformed the way that our constituency even thinks about the university, and um we started out with only a $650 million goal. I say only; it was still historic for the entire SUNY system. All 64 institutions nowhere, their institution had a campaign goal bigger than that. We achieved that at the beginning of the pandemic, and we really always knew we wanted to take it to a billion-dollar goal. And uh, but we also didn't want to be tone-deaf, so we actually delayed announcing the new goal of a billion and uh, set a new timeline because we weren't sure what was going to happen fundraising wise during the pandemic. Well, the reality is we've had three record fundraising years and we're at about 845 million towards the billion. We expect to close uh, a fair amount uh, that will get us almost to 900 million by June 30 of this year. And so we're anticipating that we're going to hit this goal early. And uh, so our decision is, you know, when do we close down the campaign and transition to the next one? Because we know the next one is coming. And, and you really see the transformation in the type of yes, because now we have donors coming to us. We had one to two endowed chairs a year prior to this campaign. We've completely changed the narrative in the past four years. Now we're doing about 10 endowed chairs a year and donors are coming to us saying, I want to invest or something like that. And so that is what a campaign can do for an organization. And we're proud to have, uh, been able to do that for, uh, UB and, uh, and the future of the university.
0: Well, it's been, um, a privilege to, to see that work, um, from the sidelines and, you know, collaboration with, with your team as well. Um, and I just want to acknowledge to our, to our listeners, you know, this is, uh, we're recording this on May 31st and, um, it has been a tough May, right? Uh, it's been a tough May in Buffalo. Um, probably one of the toughest yeah. it's been a tough May in, in the country. And, um, I, I wanted to, to focus the conversation on, you know, Rod's work and, and, and his career path, but I do believe strongly in the context of, you know, intrinsic motivation, um, There's not a lot any of us can do in the context of the mass shootings in Buffalo and and, and elsewhere that continue. Um, But I do believe it reinforces the need for education. You know, it reinforces the importance of philanthropy when you look at the response that your community and others have have had. Um, And it makes me feel um, uh, like all of us, you know, in this sector, are on the right side of, of history of, of this ugly chapter, uh, in history. But I just have to ask as a, you know, leader in the community, you know, Rod, what, um, you've learned, if anything, over the last month and, you know, how, um, you know, just how, how you're doing.
1: Uh, thanks Brent. And I will say that, uh, uh, there's a slogan going around Buffalo right now it's Buffalo strong and how the community is coming together this is absolutely horrific not only for Buffalo but for our country uh, the fact that this was a white supremacist led uh, uh, event um, really has hit home for so so many and uh, we need to pay attention to our community this is blocks away from our school of medicine downtown. So we have our medical students that are affected by this more than uh, um, our probably our students that are on our Amherst campus. But I will say that even as an advancement leader, I have team members that are um, really shaken by this. And it's important that we recognize as a leader that we have a responsibility to our uh, employees, our team, to make sure that and then to make sure this conversation it's now become so much more close and personal and you see the impact on people that uh, we need to continue the conversation so that we continue to promote a diverse equitable and inclusive community and um, uh, so it, it can't stop after two weeks of talking about it after the dust settles it, we need to continue this and help drive us for to making change in our thoughts and our community.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, there are um, there are certain policy things and debates that uh, we can you know, influence by way of personal advocacy, however we may choose, um, but ultimately can't control. Um, but there is work that your team is fundraising for every day that supports mental health, that supports medicine and care, that supports education empathy, DEI objectives. I mean, so many of the things that are counter to the motivations that um, are, are so common in these shootings. And I just think it's um, it's so, obviously it's so frustrating on so many levels, but uh, for me, it's just a reminder. And and part of what I shared with our team is like, this is why we need philanthropy. Like it's not the only solution for sure. It is a longer term, um, you know, I think it has a longer term uh, role to play while also addressing some of the short term, you know, pain that is being, that is being lived. But, but I guess that's, you know, hopefully maybe the optimistic um, conclusion on on what is such a a challenging period is this work matters. It, 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 it has transformed Rod's life and his family. It has transformed my life. We we have so much more to do, um, but it's why we've got to fight for, the best talent, the best strategies, the best technology. We just cannot accept um, anything uh, other than the best because um, the stakes are, are way too high.
1: Great ending, Brad. Can't thank you enough for the time today.
0: Rod, can I just ask, um, are right. you hiring? If people want to get in touch, you're <clears throat> active on LinkedIn, I know. Um, what would you recommend?
1: Yeah, we are always hiring. And that, uh, so yes, uh, people can uh, find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I always, I'm one of those uh, vice presidents who will always answer my emails. And um, uh, the opportunities here are something that uh, we've been trying to fill uh, positions since the beginning of this fiscal year. And we just can't recruit fast enough. So, and we're one of those organizations that believe in. Uh, a hybrid model of employment. And so uh, we work with people to find what would work best for them. Well,
0: I encourage everybody to uh, get familiar with that jobs page at a minimum. Maybe you know somebody um, in your network who uh, you might be able to refer um, Rod's way. Uh, It's been uh, really, I mean, just such a journey. And thank you for your time, Rod, and your colleagues. I hope your team is listening and I hope they all feel like they know you even a little bit better uh, than they might have before. All right? Thanks so much, Brent. All right, best wishes everybody. With that, Brent signing off today with Rodney Grabowski, Vice President for University Advancement at the University at Buffalo. Take care.